0: If you've got a Bible, we're in Colossians 1. Uh, we're going to jump right into our study today. So if you want to find your place there in Colossians 1, um, it is kind of midway through the New Testament, not too hard to find. You go past the Gospels, past Romans and Corinthians, and then you find a couple little letters and tucked away there after Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians, you'll find Colossians. So you can find your place there. We'll be reading from that text in just a few minutes. Um, We got a lot to talk about today, Um, so uh, I hope you can get comfy, and I think we're going to have a good time, and I think that God has some awesome and incredible things to say to us this morning. Uh, I, I think it's pretty appropriate um, a, a pretty appropriate day for us to launch into this new uh, will be a series that we'll be staying with and studying in for the next couple of weeks. I think it's a pretty appropriate day for us to launch into this. Uh, the next few messages are going to be under the banner or uh, part of this study that we're calling Complete in Him. Um, This series is rooted and derived from the book of Colossians, or the letter written to the Colossian church. Um, It's a letter that I think we'll greatly benefit from studying over the next few weeks. Um, But if today's your only week you're going to be with us, I think today will be an extra special uh, blessing to you. So I hope you come back for the next few um, all the more. But there's something pretty unique uh, about Colossians and the church uh, to whom it is written, which is a church in the little city of Colossae. Um, Colossae was a little town in ancient Turkey. Thank so if you have a truly inspired Bible, you've got some maps in the back, right? Some Bibles don't have those maps, right? But no, if you've got a Bible with maps in the back, you probably have looked uh, up and down at those uh, different uh, periods that are charted out. Um, there's uh, probably a map called Paul's Missionary Journey, or Paul's, um, uh, or the Missionary Journeys of the Church, uh, and you'll probably find a map that uh, you can easily spotlight or find Colossae. Uh, there's usually a designation for all the letters, all the cities that had letters written to them. Colossae is kind of in the middle of Turkey, so... Uh, It wasn't really a port city, wasn't really a populated city as many others were, Um, but uh, it was an ancient town, a town in ancient Turkey, um, and it ceased to exist around 400 AD. So it has not been really around um, for a long, long time. Uh, But honestly, it, it had struggled at being relevant for really hundreds of years before it kind of dissolved. It was ruined by an earthquake twice in the span of about 60 years, and what once was an important city for trade and industry and fabric, um, it faded into history and into um, really lacking a, a true uh, a vital role in, in its area. For that reason, Colosse was a town with a lot of insecurities. It was a town with a lot of trust issues, a lot of wounds, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, a lot of failure. Over time, the town was full of sort of self-fulfilling prophecies. Um, people were stuck in this cycle of never believing they could be better and never accomplishing uh, much at all. And under the, under the Roman emperors that cycled in and out of power, uh, Colossae failed to receive the bailout resources that many cities did, many more important cities did throughout the years. And Colossae, as a result, fell behind other cities as many markets moved uh, past and grew larger. Colossae dwindled over time. And, and the city, um, and really the entire population of Colossae, They felt small, they felt unimportant, they felt inferior to the rest of the empire. You could almost say that the city felt insignificant and incomplete. They at many times felt completely forsaken. As the city suffered a major earthquake around 60 AD, um, in the ruins and ashes and rubble of the aftermath, the people lost all hope. And they felt genuinely forsaken By the empire. People turned en masse to the Roman gods, but there was no hope found in the gods. And the arm of the the gods, the empire, offered no relief. So many leaders and elders and, 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 and community leaders of the city began to go to the surrounding towns and asking for help. And over time, they would come back empty handed. Many people would go and beg for some vitalization from this industry or that industry, from this city or that city, and no one seemed to be able to convince anybody to invest in Colossae. There was a man named Epaphras. Epaphras was a man who sought some relief in the city of Ephesus. But while he was there, he got sidetracked. He, he did not find any monetary, monetary relief. He did not find any bankers to invest in the industry of Colossae. He didn't find any brilliant minds that would come and start up businesses or help revitalize the town. He didn't find any motivational speakers that spoke on behalf of the Roman gods. But he did find something that he was completely unexpecting that caught him so off guard but changed his life. He found a church tucked away in the corner of Ephesus. And he began to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. At first, Epaphras was uh, all business. I don't have time for that. That's just a cult. I've heard of it, but I don't know much about it. But over time, he began to talk more and more to these Christians. And he became a part of the church there in Ephesus. And he returned to Colossae with a sense of call and purpose over his life. He began spreading the story of Jesus to his neighbors and his friends. And shortly after, there was a Christian community organized in Colossae. They didn't know very much about Jesus other than that what, he was, what was being taught and spread around the empire. But what they did know, what they had heard was enough to pull at their hearts. And it did not make the economy better. It didn't make them all of a sudden have better jobs or, or better futures. But it gave them a hope in their hearts that they knew would last forever. Forever. And think about it. They were a people who were used to failure. They were a people who felt rejected and overlooked and incomplete and insignificant. They felt completely forsaken. And the notion of there being one God, not many, but the notion of there being one God who became one of them to do something for all, of them, that notion was so appealing, and it spoke in ways the Roman gods never had. One God who came to a people like them, far away from hope and far away from the Roman resources, a little place called Judea, the heel of Rome, the stomping ground of the Middle East, this idea of a god becoming flesh and bringing hope to all people. it was instantly appealing to them, and more they, the more they heard, the more they wanted to know and this, and isn 't this what makes the gospel? So universally appealing to this day that God approaches us. He doesn't sugarcoat our condition. He's very honest with us. He speaks directly to us and offers direct hope for us. The Apostle Paul had started the church at Ephesus where Epaphras became a Christian and and got saved. We know a lot about that church. He spent years, three years, over three years at the church, helping define its identity and helping define who they would be and, and the mission and message they would spread. Paul would spend many years going back and forth corresponding with the Ephesian people. And the opening to the letter that he wrote to that church serves as their mission statement. It served as kind of their defining, uh, kind of the definition of who they were and and, and what they believed. And I I want to share that with you because this is what Epaphras would have brought back to the people of Colossae. Even as he chose us, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So before our foundations began to crumble, before there ever was anything in place, God chose us, knowing what would happen to us, knowing what we would do, God chose us and He blessed us in Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. So Epaphras came back with this message of a God who became flesh, who wanted to make it clear how He felt about us and what He thought what He wants for us, that He has chosen us, He has blessed us, He favors us. He's accepted us and He's offered redemption and reconciliation to us no matter what we've done. He's lavished it upon us as in it will not run out. Would to God that this would be everybody's introduction to God. Because it should be. And if this wasn't how you were introduced to God, I hope you can be reintroduced to Him today under this banner, under this promise, these promises. I mean, just think about what we've heard just so in those few verses. We've been called chosen, favored, adopted, redeemed, and forgiven. And the word that's really going to be our focus today and come to light in this text that we're going to read is that one in the middle, adopted. Now think about this. It can't be a coincidence, and it shouldn't be overlooked. All the letters written by Paul to this church and that church in the New Testament were churches that Paul had a major first-hand role in starting and continually checking in with and visiting as they came together. There's just one church to whom he writes a letter that he didn't play a significant role in ever, and as far as we know, he never visited it, and that's the church at Colossae. Yet as God would have it, and through correspondence with Epaphras, Paul adopted the church at Colossae as his own. Maybe even to demonstrate what God was doing for them and through them. To a people who felt insignificant, to a people who felt incomplete, to a people who felt completely forsaken, all of this would have been happening at just the right time. And maybe... It's true for some of us, for all of us today. Maybe this is all coming your way at just the right time. This world has a way of leaving us all feeling insignificant at times, doesn't it? We don't measure up. We can't when others can. We don't when others do. We haven't when others have. This world has a way of exposing how incomplete we are, doesn't it? We try to mask this emptiness, but nothing fills the void. We attempt to numb the pain, but nothing seems to work. This world has a way of exposing and, and, and shoving us into a corner without this and without that. It's as if we have been completely forsaken. So if you've ever felt insignificant, incomplete, if you've ever felt or if you feel like you have been forsaken by anybody, anything, anytime. If you've ever felt forgotten or moved past or left behind. And sometimes isn't it true that you, you appear to be okay, but you're not? And, but maybe because of pride or maybe because you're ashamed, you don't speak up. And nobody ever asks how you are. Nobody ever gets to see what's really going on. And, and maybe other times you ask for help, but nobody seems to care. Maybe you turned to church at some point in your past, and you just didn 't see, seem like anybody didn 't seem like anybody wanted, wanted you there or wanted to help you or offered you this hope that, that, that they claimed to have We're left with this brand of insignificance, this void of incompleteness, this hollow burden of being forsaken. Maybe on a day like today, the feeling, the pain, the dread, it's heightened. Maybe it's intensified for you today. Uh, I hope that Father's Day is a reason for joy for all of you, and I hope that it warms your heart, but I'm sure in the reality of our world today, Father's Day draws a lot of painful emotions as it does joyful emotions. And many because of the wounds, the gaps, the scars left behind on what has been called the fatherless generation. And whether the father was present or not, emotionally, maybe he wasn't. You see, there is in all of us, even you, there is in all of us a primal craving, desire, need for our father's blessing. And not just a a blessing that is there if you do this or if you do that. Not a blessing if you turn out this way or if you turn out that way. But an unconditional approval, affection, and attention from your Father. Studies have been conducted and research has proven and within every heart, men and women, young and old, this primal desire burns and beckons. And if you say, oh, it doesn't matter to me, it matters even more to you. Everyone is desperate for the approval from a father. There's a hunger for approval that shows up in many different ways and leads us down so many different roads. And you can almost back up and look at any of our decisions that we've made throughout our lives. You can look at the roads that we've all taken professionally, relationally, and morally, and all of them speak to how we are chasing after something to fill voids that often are left and can only be quenched and found in our father. Without, from, and apart from this approval, we sink in insignificance. And we need to be honest with ourselves. If you've got these wounds today, I'm not trying to bring them to the surface to make you feel vulnerable. I, I want you to feel these so I, we can bring some healing to them. So, if you have sunk in insignificance, if you felt lost in incompleteness, if you felt completely forsaken, maybe this conversation strikes a nerve for you because of what you went through or what you're going through as a son or a daughter of a dad who wasn't or isn't there. Maybe your memories of your dad are memories of anger and rejection and abandonment. Maybe your memories are awesome, but that's the problem. They're just memories because he's gone. And you can't bring him back. Maybe you have an awesome relationship with your dad. You're the apple of his eye. Maybe he doesn't tell you enough. But maybe he does. Maybe he loves you and he treasures you and he makes you feel safe. But when he's not there to reassure you, you're missing something. And maybe you need an even greater assurance that is found in who your earthly dad was always meant to reflect and point to. While this might be a touchy subject at first for some, for others, this might instantly stick. And for all of us, I think this has potential to change our lives. Most of all, change our hearts and change how we relate to and connect to God. So follow with me, if you will, as we read the first 15 verses of Colossians 1. We'll read most of the chapter, but I want to start out with these verses. They're pretty powerful. And I think you'll pick up on a few things as we read. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, these people that felt insignificant, (laughs) unwanted, Paul says, we are thankful for you. We're praying for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before the word of the truth in the gospel which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Also, you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and all spiritual understanding." "...that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light." He's delivered us from the power of darkness. He's conveyed us into the kingdom of His Son, of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This text has a lot to say to us. And again, if we read it and hear, knowing how Paul is relating to to the Colossians, how Paul is seeking to relate and and, and communicate with people he's actually never met, a few things stand out to me. Right off the bat, Paul reaches a hand out to these folks he's never met, to people who are struggling and doubting almost in everything, but are clinging to the hope that they've heard. You hear him repeat that a lot. You've heard of this, and they're clinging to that, that, that hope. Paul does something that he does in about every letter. He introduces himself and acknowledges his uh, role or reason for writing. But in this letter, I think there's there's something different about this introduction. It's a unique approach that he takes. Paul defines himself, and then he goes on to define the reader. They've never met him. He's never met them. But listen to how he enables the Colossians to both trust his role and also trust who he says we can be and are in Christ by faith. In the first verse, Paul defines himself as an apostle. He defines Timothy as his companion, set apart for the gospel by God's will. And then he builds a bridge to the audience. At the same time, he offers them a very defining moment in the spotlight. Notice the very specific and intentional language Paul uses in verse 2. To the saint and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace to you, peace from God. Not my father... He extends the platform to them. Our Father. It's a very communal thing to do to a people He has never even communicated with. It's so important though. He wants and He hopes that we can accept this and run with this because from verse 3 forward, He makes clear that Jesus came as God's Son to show us who God is and model for us how God can be known. Notice in verse 15 it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You may have not ever, you may have heard people say, well, you can't know who God is. He's just he's visible, he's mysterious. Paul says Jesus has come to make the invisible God visible and crystal clear in character and in essence. But look at verse 10. Paul says, I want you to know, I want you to walk worthy and fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Now here's the thing, Colossae knew a little bit about God. Many in the world knew a lot about God, but God is inviting us to do more and know more than just know about Him. Do you know? Do you know that you can step beyond just knowing about God? and truly know God? And this text, this verse is not saying, hey, I want to just fill your heads with numbers and data and facts and verses and this and that and that you can chapter and verse this and you can tell people what the Bible says about that and that. Paul is not trying to say, I want to make you smart. He's not saying, I just want you to know what the Bible says. He says, hey, God wants you to know Him. Not just know about Him. Jesus came for that very purpose. To take us beyond... Knowing about, and introduces to God. God can be known and desires that you know Him as Father. Dan DeHaan was a youth minister in Atlanta back in the 70s and 80s. He wrote a book right before he died suddenly in a plane crash. He called the book The God You Can Know. You'll have heard me talk about it before. It's changed the lives of many people, including mine. And the premise of his book is that there is a God that there is a God who is inviting us to know Him as Father and be called His child, is there anything more valuable than pursuing Him? I mean, if there is a God of the universe, a single God who is inviting you to know Him as Father, inviting you to be known as His child, is there anything more important than that? There is a God who is bigger and yet more personal than our wildest imaginations. He's inviting us to come and know Him. And Christianity is not just facts and charts and chapters and verses. It's not just dates and numerology, comparing and contrasting theories of creation and in times. And I learned this quickly when I started ministry. What once was a zeal to know about God surrendered to a throne of just wanting to know God. Faith is, and following Jesus, is more important than memorization and information. It's about revelation. It's about inspiration. Jesus came to make this oh so clear. And the Bible makes this also so clear. This comes from sitting under His Word and saying, Oh God, what is this trying to tell me about You? What are You trying to impress upon me? Is my posture even appropriate in light of what this text tells me about You? It comes by falling on our faces before the holy, glorious, loving God that we have, been, have, have revealed in front of us. It's about receiving the revelation and inspiration as life-changing because it is. I don't know about you, but many of us have a skill set. We have sports teams or maybe a city or something that we're interested in that we know everything about, right? We've diced it and sliced it. We know every little bit of information there is to know about it. And the question is, if there is a God of grace and mercy... If there is a God of, who is holy and almighty, who is inviting us to know Him as Father and be called His child, is there anything more important than that? God the Father wants to be known by you and you can know as much about Him as you have the appetite and desire to know. There's never going to be a moment in your pursuit where you hit a limit. You can go as high up the mountain as you want to go. You know uh, about God's revelation. It was first given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And God began to issue His simple pursuit of Moses by saying, Moses, come up to the mountain and I will give you my word. And that invitation was over Moses' life for years and years. Moses grew up in the shadow of Egypt. He was brought in as Pharaoh's, chi- Pharaoh's grandchild, but he was never given the riches and luxury and the rights of an Egyptian. His parents were forced to abandon him. All the riches of Egypt weren't enough to make him feel complete, to fill that void. He wandered into the desert as a middle-aged man, questioning his purpose in his future, often wanting to end his life. And it was at the foot of that mountain that God began revealing Himself. And it's revealed to us that it's never too late. We're never too old to come to know God. And through the revelation of Jesus, we find that God is still in earnest pursuit of us. And in the way Jesus reveals, uh, God reveals Himself to Moses, the same way Jesus is revealing Himself to us, the invitation is embedded with this same power. You could almost say this. The Bible's message about God can be summed up with a single word. Father. At the heart of the Gospel is this invitation to know and call God Father. That's the knowledge of God the Bible is trying to impart on you first and foremost. Now maybe, now maybe the idea of God as Father is difficult because of your experience with your earthly Father. But I'll say this. God is your perfect heavenly Father. Your Father's witness should reflect this but if you struggle under a Father wound God can heal it. The Bible gives this Reminder to us over and over again. David wrote, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. That word take me in means that God has saw you wandering around, whether broken, whether lost, whatever it's been, whatever you've been going through, whoever has shut their door on you, Jesus came from heaven to seek and save all who have wandered away or been drawn away to bring us in. He did not come down from heaven to punish you or to scold you. He could have done that from a very high and lofty place. He came in a personal way to make it clear to you the invitation is personal. His love is that powerful. No one is too lost. Jesus is constantly in pursuit of lost things. And this is how the Bible says Jesus defines God. John wrote in John 1, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. So if you want to know what God is like, look no further than Jesus. Verse 18 tells us that No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. And that echoes what verse 15 tells us. I like to read on because these next few verses are even better. Verse 16, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, In Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In all things He may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. By Him to reconcile all things to Himself. For by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And you, you, who were once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has been reconciled. He has reconciled you and the body of His flesh to the death to present you, to present you holy and blameless above reproach in His sight. Not because of your own ability to become holy or blameless, but because of what He did to make you and call you holy and blameless. A few things we just heard. We were created by Him and for Him. We are not accidents. We are not incidental. We were created on purpose, for a purpose, for Him, for joy, for His pleasure. Verse 19 calls back to Jesus' baptism, where the Father audibly rejoices over Jesus. He shouts from heaven, that's my son. I love him. He's mine, and I'm his dad. And I want everybody here in me to know, you can have the same kind of relationship with me. That's why we're doing this. And this text tells us that Jesus came for the sole purpose of putting things in proper perspective for us. We live in a fallen world with fallen tendencies, with downtrodden spirits. We are broken, and when the world sinks, we sink. When the world crumbles, we crack. We ache and we feel the pains the world brings on us. The dread and shadow of insignificance and incompleteness of feeling forsaken. Yet Jesus came, as you can just go down the list, in verse, four, verse 13 it says He came to deliver us from darkness. In verse 14 He came to redeem us from sin. He came in verse number 19 to make sure that we are no longer apart from the fullness of God. It says that He came in verse 21 to make sure that we are no longer separated or we no longer feel alienated from God. And I love what it says in verse 22. He came to present you to God. You know what that means? That God said, okay, Jesus... The Father and the Son, however, this happened in a way that we can't comprehend. The Father said, Hey, I want you to go find my lost children and I want you to bring them and present them to me as a gift to me. So, what does that say about you? God says, I want you to go find them and bring them and present them to me so I can rejoice over them as my own. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that empowering? That's where knowing God as Father leads us to this place of acceptance, this place of security and warmth, peace and purpose. When you wake up every day as as if you're in the presence of God Himself, it changes the way you live. It changes the way you feel. It'll change the decisions that you make. We've spent so much time talking about God as Father because that's really where the road to completion begins the conversation about who God is and what God is like. And Jesus defined God as Father above everything else. And you can trust Jesus. Jesus or Hebrews says this about Jesus, about the Son. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of His nature. So if you want to know what God is like, you have no issue trusting exactly what Jesus says and what Jesus did. Think about all the ways Jesus could have introduced God to the world, or could have reframed God for the world. Because y'all know the Old Testament. Y'all are smart. And his audience knew the Old Testament. Think about all the names and all the ways he could have introduced God to the people. He could have said, we need to refer to him as I am. I mean, the all-encompassing, all, you know, all-powerful, preeminent, glorious, supreme, sovereign creator of the universe. Get on your face, put it in the mud. You shouldn't even look up because you're not worthy. I mean, he could have said, Hey, he's the I am, he's the Almighty, he's the King of Kings because he is. But you know what Jesus would say? To me, he's more than I am, he's more than Almighty, he's more than King, he's Father. I mean, maybe, you, maybe your instinct, because of our religious tendencies, is to say, isn't that an insult? I mean, isn't that underscoring His majesty and His might? I mean, just Father? And Jesus would say, maybe you're the one underscoring here. Maybe you're the one that has been taught the wrong way. Because greater than Almighty, and I am, is Father. Father means more. And if you understand God as Father, you'll better understand Him as all these others. See, this speaks to our heart in a brand new way. It makes us feel vulnerable. It makes us feel little. It makes us feel... It makes us super personal, doesn't it? Because Father goes where the others don't. Father comes in the door when it's dark and when when everything is shutting down. Father comes to our hearts. Father is relational. And Jesus says, listen, y'all. Y'all know God through what He does 9 to 5. You know him through the suit and tie, the business deals, the battle, the blood, sweat, and tears. I know him in ways y'all have never known. And that's why I'm here to show you. I'm sure all of you have heard all the fancy Old Testament names for God. All those Hebrew words that people try to sound smart and pronounce, but they don't know how because they weren't alive back then. They don't know how to speak it. And I don't either. I have took three classes and I still don't know. But y'all know how people talk about all the names of God, right? Think about all these fancy Hebrew names that Jesus could have threw at people. Yahweh, Elohim, El Shaddai, El Elam, El Elion. Think about all of these fancy Hebrew names. The God of angel armies, the God who always sees, the God who always provides, the God who's everlasting, the God most high, the God almighty, the creator, the I am. And Jesus did away with all those. He gave a brand new word for you to connect God with. And it wasn't a brand new for the people it just never had been used in reference to God they didn't even think it could be. Jesus replaced Yahweh and Elohim and El Olam and El Elyon and El Shaddai. He replaced all of those with a Hebrew word that nobody ever thought they could use for God. Abba, which means daddy. Jesus says, if you start seeing God the way I see Him, you'll understand why He goes out and does the other things He does. You'll understand why He stands for this and opposes that. Because He's your dad. He tells us that if we begin with our Father, we begin to understand who God really is and what He's really like, and the cry of your soul will finally be heard, and you'll finally hear the voice of your Father... Saying, that's my girl, that's my boy, I love you. Amen. He reframed God's entire approach with, for God so love the world. And He gives us new eyes to see the old through, and a new heart to feel the world through. He longs for us to approach God as Father. He longs for us to dwell together as His kids. Isn't that truly amazing? Doesn't it? that show the significance of our lives, doesn't it just make you feel complete? We can rest assured that we haven't been forsaken. We never will be. Think about the implications when Jesus erased that all, that, all that context and started over a blank slate, but a place where everyone could feel comfortable, a place where everyone could be saved. He said this, And I'm pulling some verses together in John 14. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come for you. Come to you. Rather than being orphans, God calls us His own. You know what this text has done beyond defining who God is? I mean, it's defined, God is our Father, He's preeminent, He's sovereign, He's good, He's holy, He's magnificent. But you know what all that is done? By saying that under the Father's love, we are delivered, we are redeemed, we are reconciled, we are blameless. You know what this text has done for you? This text has redefined you as God's child. And that's a a role that whether you realize it or not, you have been looking for your entire life. And even if you're religious and you think, well, I've got this deal figured out and I come here and I do that, but I stay, we stay separate during our weeks, right? I don't care where you're at with your walk with God or whether you're close or not close. If you don't see yourself as His child, you're missing out. More than your sin, more than your failure, more than anything you've ever done or what you can do is who you are. And you know what God says? You know who God says you are? You are my beloved child. He wants us to be the first thing we think about every day. He wants us to be what defines us and drives us. He wants us to be like you were when you were a little kid. And the first thing you do when you get out of bed is you yell for your parents. Because that you've got a mess, they need to clean up, right? He wants that to be the primal because that is what, it, at the very core of your heart, that is what you want and that is what you need. We are children of God. We are sons and daughters of God. That's the message the New Testament has put on blast. And God says, I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and my daughters. Because that's the message Jesus taught over and over again. And it is possible for a song to be placed in our hearts around this reality, around our identity in Christ. I want to bring our attention one last time to verse number 12. Where Paul says, I would hope that we all could have this song in our hearts. Where we would give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance. That's a lot of words. We began our talk today around the idea of Paul adopting Colossae and its people to be his own, his own church. And all that simply foreshadows the conversation about how God has called us his children. In Christ, he has adopted us as his own. This is so powerful when you think about how adoption worked in the ancient world. In Jewish culture, there was no concept of adoption. If a father died, his wife and his children were passed on to the nearest of kin, to the father, his brother, his cousin, whomever. If nobody wanted to redeem the family, they were put on the auction block. Somebody with the highest bid could redeem the family, but children were never auctioned because nobody wanted them. Children were orphaned. Someone might want the wife, but the children were just getting in the way. Jesus spoke into this tension, and he said, I will not leave you as orphans. Things were different in Rome, though. The Roman Empire may have brought a lot of ills upon the world, but they introduced one pretty amazing thing, and that's adoption. It may sound crass at first, but it actually paints a pretty powerful picture of God's agape love. Children weren't naturally benefactors of, under Roman law. If you were born to your parents, that didn't mean that you would naturally inherit their estate. Roman law required parents to adopt even their own children. And if you did not want to adopt your child, if you did not want your child to be the benefactor of your estate, you could loan them or you could auction them off to somebody else. Some were passed on, some were passed over, some were abandoned, of course, but some were indeed adopted and anybody who adopted a child had to mean it for life because Roman adoption was permanent. And children were protected and had rights forever. Any previous debts were washed away, any legal ties were erased, they were given immediate access to their parents' estates and the parents were required to begin sharing and ensuring that the child would be provided for in the event they suddenly were gone. Roman adoption was serious for the good of the child. To be an adopted heir in Rome meant immediate and permanent benefits. Adopted children weren't just heirs, but they were joint heirs, concurrent benefactors. I want to close with this scripture from Romans. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now we'll come back to that word sons. Sons. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Now, sons is a Greek word that speaks of status. It does not really refer to gender, it refers to the status in the estate. It refers to the resemblance in the legal connection to the parents. So that we might cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. That's what Paul means in Galatians when he says we have been presented to God. God is rejoicing over us. There is no hostility. There is no separation. God is not angry. He will never abuse. He will never abandon. He has adopted us. We are His forever. And there is a primal craving within all of us for a Father that we can only find in heaven. And there's a primal desire in God's own heart for you to be His. There was only one of you. He came to find you, and He did the craziest thing to call you His own. Amazing love. How can it be? You who are hurting can find healing. Insignificance finds favor. Incompleteness is filled by our Creator's purpose. Forsaken receives adoption. The world's curse is lifted. We receive heaven's cure. We are no longer lost slaves, but we are children of God. I hope this is what it means to be a Jesus follower to you. I hope the very basis of your relationship with God is that you know him as father and he sees you as his child and if you have not ever started from there maybe you've had years of religion that you've built on and it's all been just kind of confusing you along the way because you've never understood God this way maybe today is the day to tear all that down and start over maybe you've never came to God simply as Jesus taught us to and said abba daddy if this is really how you want me to come to you I'm here And I'm not leaving until you show up. And let me tell you, God will show up. He will not leave you as an orphan. When God hears one of His children say, Daddy, He runs to you. So maybe you need to start there today. Maybe you need to restart there today. And maybe you just want to come and give God praise. So we sing this last song, No Longer Slays. Maybe this song can be a vehicle for you to give God the praise and the glory he deserves on this Father's Day.